All right, welcome to the conversation. So you've probably noticed the Republicans passing bills all across the country against transgender folks. So they are the latest targets because the right wing always has to find the other. And now they, in a sense, have to expand their circle of hate. And that's what they've done. We want to bring on a reporter to talk about it. Canelo Lopez is a transgender health reporter at The Insider. Canelo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Jink. No problem. So, we, you wrote about Pride event. Um, and so I think most people know how it started, but but just in case they don't, how did the pride parades in America start? Absolutely, so the pride parades in the US kind of began as a culmination of existing organizing that was happening with uh, queer and trans um, basically activists. So this happened in 1969 in New York City. It was brought on by a lot of tension between police forces and existing queer folks um, who were all congregating at the Stonewall Inn, which is a historic bar that still exists in New York City today. But essentially, queer folks were sick and tired of having to exist in a situation in which police were consistently brutalizing queer folks simply for existing. At this point in New York City, there were still existing laws that banned cross-dressing and required folks to wear enough articles of clothing for the gender they were assigned at birth. So, you know, these people were sick, they were tired. It was a lot of black and brown trans organizers. Um, who just wanted the brutality to stop. So essentially the Stonewall Inn was raided during the month of Pride before Pride was a thing and people fought back. So it culminated in this big riot that ended up lasting for about six days. And at the end of it, we had the birth essentially of the queer liberation movement as we know it modernly. And after that point, there was a march that would happen every year to commemorate the riot and to kind of pay homage to the organizers and the work that was put in to push back against authority figures. Is that still what's happening with pride parades? It's definitely shifted a bit, especially in the last, I would say, 20 years as queer people have gotten a lot more acceptance in the US, which is fantastic. It's really important that we're seeing a lot more acceptance of queer and trans folks. However, as queer and trans folks are seen as more of a part of mainstream society, that means that our dollars really matter, particularly to corporations. So we've seen increasingly more corporations kind of sponsoring pride events. So you'll get Bank of America, you'll get Chase, you'll get a lot of large organizations that will cater their products to pride. Like if you look at Target's pride collection. And you know this is good in some ways because there's a lot of donations that happen to queer organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, which definitely need the money to continue to do the important work that they do. However, it also means that as queerness becomes more acceptable, at least in a mainstream view, it means that the original people that it was organized for, so we're talking about sex workers, addicts, kinksters, trans folks in general, queer people of color are really being pushed more to the margins as it becomes more acceptable and becomes more sanitized for you know the everyday cookie cutter American family, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we call, apparently there's a term for it, pride pimping. Yes, pride pimping hmm, is what they call it. Yeah. Um, all right, so what's the alternative? What can we do? 
I think it's really important that words are followed up with action. So representation is incredibly important. And I really don't want to undermine the importance and value of having corporations include queer people in big campaigns and like make us really visible because that means that a lot of queer and trans youth are able to see, see themselves growing up, which does greatly reduce suicide rates. So I, I don't wanna undermine that, but I think it's important that words are followed up by action. So rather than corporations, you know, asking for kink not to be a pride or trying to push certain um, you know, forms of pride celebrations, there just needs to be more active donation to organizations that are already driving this conversation and doing the work. So there are plenty of black trans organizations that specifically cater to the communities that are the most marginal within the LGBTQ umbrella. So great organizations like For the Girls, the Okra Project. I think it's important for corporations to be donating to these spots and kind of letting these organizers who are local who are already doing this work um, take control of the conversation and just really redistribute resources, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so Canela, um, we have uh, Republicans, as I said in the beginning, passing laws uh, trying to make sure that transgender uh, athletes can't uh, play on I guess girls teams is what the laws are about. It's first of all, not much of an actual problem in several states when they so called problem. When they asked, hey, do you know a single case of this happening? The lawmakers who passed those laws couldn't name a single case. So that leads to the obvious conclusion that they're not trying to address any issue. If and but what what's the issue anyway? Really, like it's just all it is is hate, right? But but since it doesn't even exist really as as something that they could even point to, not that transgender folks don't play in high school sports, but any issue that has arisen out of that in Texas, right? As an example, by the way, they their residents freeze to death. Uh, and now they have no uh, electricity in the winter, but they're busy passing nonsense laws uh, based on hate. Um, but a lot of people might think, well, okay, since it's not that big of an issue, meaning like it's this is not a real controversy that's ripping apart uh, different high schools, etc. It's a dumb law, it's a hateful law, but does it really, uh, how much harm does it do? And I wanted you to address that. The harm done by these bills, even though um, there's some statistics out there about the number of trans youth, it's important to understand that there are more and more trans youth coming out every day. So the idea that there it doesn't affect that many people in the US, there aren't that many trans people that exist, so it isn't an issue, is really a misconception. And also, even if it's only affecting one child, it is really actively harmful to be having these bills that are targeting children for trying to exist. And it advocates have said it again and again, that these kinds of bills do drive up rates of suicide. They drive up rates of depression, anxiety within trans youth. And even if we allow one of these bills to pass and it only impacts like a handful of students, which that's not the case, it sets a really dangerous precedent. And it's a slippery slope essentially. So. If you pass these bills, what's to stop Republican legislators from then proposing more extreme bills that actively target trans health care, for example? Arkansas is the first state in the country that has passed active legislation that is going to prevent trans youth from getting life-saving medical care. It's just about the precedent that these kinds of bills set yeah. for future laws that could 
truly be even more harmful. Yeah, and, and beyond that, I think that since they can't point to any controversies that they think they're trying to address, that the point of the bills is hate. That, that the idea is to propagate that hate as much as humanly possible so that they could have some others to fight back against. And so that's gonna lead to a question because it used to be black folks in this country and, and, and by the way, it was always everyone, right? It was black folks and gay folks and trans folks, etc. that were being discriminated against. But there were different groups that were focused on at different times politically, right? And so obviously during Jim Crow it was black folks, then it became gay folks. And, and as late as 2004 for sure, Bush ran on no gay marriage and they put that as ballot measures all across the country. And, and but now, as more people have come out, Republicans realize, oh, I have gay folks in, in my family, I have LGBT people, but, but they don't have as many trans folks apparently that they know. So they've extended the, out the boundary of who it's acceptable to, to hate. And so what I'm curious about is, does that create any issue within the LGBTQ movement? Um, or no, is everybody still super united? It doesn't matter, they come for us, one of us, they come for all of us. It's interesting being within an umbrella term because I think that people do forget that LGBTQ stands for so many communities, right? With so many different interests. And it kind of is related to what I was speaking about earlier when we were talking about respectability and what happens when queer people become more acceptable. So even though gay marriage is legal and it's legally recognized now, there are plenty of, you know, queer folks who are able to get married. That doesn't necessarily mean there's the same kind of respectability for trans people. So what's interesting is you do see a lot of cisgender gay folks who will actively be standing against trans people and say that, you know, you're setting back the movement by advocating for your views. You're setting back the movement because you're not a part of, you know, what is respectable currently. So, I mean, we even see that when within the trans community, right? So, you'll get people who are able to access hormones, who, you know, are wealthier or white and are able to look a certain way and be acceptable trans people, whereas, you know, you get non-binary folks who may not want to start hormones in the first place. So, there's definitely a lot of fractioning within the community and so many different interests that need to be represented within one month, which makes it even more frustrating. Um, when corporations are getting involved with their own interest. Yeah, I mean, look, they uh, in Atlanta they did a great thing. Uh, Coke and a couple other corporations when uh, they, you know, chastised the Republicans for the voting rights issues, but um, but yet they pass all these laws against transgender people specifically for the purpose of hate all across the country, and those same corporations giving money uh, to LGBTQ Pride Days. And pride parades are nowhere to be found. And so, you know, what I loved was when Jewish groups stood up for Muslim Americans when Trump was trying to do the Muslim ban. And and so do Christian groups and a lot of other groups. And we all came together and that was the best of us, right? And I think it's way past time that we all did that for transgender people in this country. And we should not allow Republicans to hate, pass these hateful laws anywhere without clearly explaining and pointing out, no, that is specifically for hatred. And, and if you're with that, you're on, the, you're on that side and there should be no equivocation about it. So I hope whether it's pride events or anything else, 
that that message gets out uh, clearer. But uh, Canela Lopez writes about this for Insider. So Canela, thank you so much for joining us, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. All right, back on the conversation. Uh, joining me now is Tatenda Musapatike. Uh, she's a former Facebook staffer and uh, founder of Voter Formation Project, which we're gonna talk about in a sec. Uh, Tatenda, welcome uh, to the TYT Network. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, no problem. So uh, before we get into the political project you're on, what did you do at Facebook? I was a client solutions manager for democratic politics, which meant that I worked with folks on the left to help implement their advice strategies and try and resolve any technical issues they may have. And really acted as a voice of the industry to the company and the company back to the industry. So really worked closely with both the advertisers and then within Facebook to try and make sure that they were able to be successful with their advice. Okay, now that. That job is challenging, but the job of Facebook overall, I think admittedly is very challenging. As we both have critiques of it, I wanna acknowledge that it's not easy. So they had a policy that politicians were basically exempt from other regulations on Facebook. Because they wanted to be able, they didn't wanna interfere with political speech. Another way of saying that is basically they would let politicians lie. Because what could politicians ever do without being able to lie. Um, and so they they recently changed that and, and said they will that politicians will not be able to do that. But now they've got to go and fact check politicians, which is gonna cause them big problems because the politicians are not gonna be happy about it. So first, where do you stand on all that? Um I have a view that I think from the start it was really important to make sure that all people who are on the platform were held accountable equally. While I can understand the idea that newsworthiness means that whatever the politicians may say on the platform may eventually end up in the public ecosystem. And so it may not be necessary for the platforms to say take that content off their their pages. I do think at the end of the day, if we're going to say that we take the security and safety, especially of minority groups who are more affected by some of this language seriously, then we have to make sure that politicians are held accountable for their actions in the same way that any other person on the platform is, especially when politicians discourse has much stronger ramifications and you know consequences for the things that they say and who they can possibly harm. Yeah, so some of this is easy, so when Trump says, we did a story today about how Trump was pressing his Justice Department to interfere in the election process because he thought that Italy had fixed the elections. Okay, Italy did not fix the US elections, that's easy. That's an obvious, ridiculous lie, right? But it gets hard when you get closer to most of the things that politicians say. So Joe Manchin says that he votes against the HR1 basically for the People Act. He votes against $15 minimum wage. He votes to maintain the filibuster because that's what's what his voters want. Well, those are pretty demonstrable lies. All of those poll really, really well in West Virginia. And the reality is he's doing it for the benefit of his corporate donors. So is that a lie? Do Facebook does, should Facebook do something about that? 
That's a really interesting um, situation that you bring up because I think it, it gets into the idea of removal in terms of pure truth or removal in terms of causing direct harm. And so in that instance, I think that the politician themselves could make a really strong case for the fact that they have heard directly from their constituents that they value um, you know, his bipartisanship bipartisanship efforts over the fact that you they want you know freer fairer elections and so it would be hard for the platform to really say that you know we know that that's not true especially when public polling opinion is often fraught and not exactly the most accurate science in terms of reflecting what people want so in that instance there's a strong case for the personal belief or you know reflecting personal conversations that may seem untrue to us, but could be a closely held truth for that person. So it is really difficult, but I think in that instance, the platforms will probably take into account direct harm or either you know directly democracy or society or individual groups of people. Yeah, it's really tough. Look, I think that I'm very progressive and I can't stand Donald Trump. But if you listen to his speech that day, he said a couple of things like, hey, march down there and was aggressive in his speech. But he never said break into the building, kill them, hurt them, etc. So why draw the line there on Trump? I think it's a context issue. And and this is something that we've seen also Facebook admit when they were talking about the Situation for which when he's brought back on the platform that they will assess the context in which his platform will be put back up if it is. And so I think it's important to remember that while he didn't directly say, you know, go break into the Capitol and kill people. He had for months and months and months been stoking a huge lie about the safety and fairness of our elections. He had been pushing a big lie about who dangerous people were in our society. He had been pushing a lot of rhetoric to encourage people to stand up against their government, encouraging people to take up arms, maybe not directly against the government, but saying, you know, you need to be protecting yourselves. These people are your enemy. And when you call people your enemy and you support people having access to, you know, different kinds of arms and maybe are insinuating or strongly suggesting that, um, you should take up potentially nonviolent <laughs> or insurrectionist type behavior, then I think that also comes into play because it wasn't just the direct words. It had been months and months of context building up. And I think it's also important to note that even without the deaths, he still was sparking an idea that you needed to rise up against your government based on a falsehood, which is an insurrection despite violence, right? Like he was going there to force people to stop a normal democratic action, which at the end of the day is subverting our democracy and why I think they took this you know, unprecedented steps that they took to remove that speech from the platform. Yeah, I understand that. I think context is really important. I think it's a very good case for it. So um, Matt Gates, Lara Trump uh, recently have both uh, at, at a bare, bare minimum have insinuated uh, violence, Matt Gates with Saying that people should, you know, use their Second Amendment rights and and potentially against the government and potentially soon. So these are pretty close to direct incitement. And then Larry Trump just flat out said you should grab your guns and maybe take things into your own hands at the border. So 
What happens in a situation like that? Does if she said that on Facebook, I assume they would take that off. But does that get a ban? And if she doesn't say it on Facebook, does she not get banned? So they're only going to regulate speech that is directly posted on the platform by those content producers. So the pages that post it. So that's step one. So they need to create an infraction from their own pages. The next thing that is important is that they do have a policy process and also the review board. And so I think they're trying to build a framework of rules around how politicians will have rules enforced that will become more apparent as they need to go through more and more enforcements. But the other thing about that language is that many people aren't aware that Facebook has two standards of Policy making, one for advertisers, which is more stringent than that for just organic content. And so I think it will be interesting for us to take a look to see if they'll start to take some of those more stringent rules for advertisers where, you know, any kind of allusion to violence with guns is not permitted, and how they bridge the gap between what politicians say and if politicians put those things in ads, or if third party groups take the words from Matt Gatzer. Larry Trump that you mentioned and put them into ads. I think that's something that we'll all need to watch really closely. Got you. All right, what is the voter formation project? The voter formation project is a new C3 that I founded this year that is designed to help black and brown and underserved communities register to vote and vote so that we're closing the disparity between these voters and their white counterparts. Our goal is to make sure that we are using digital tactics to reach all of these communities so that they're better able to advocate for the policies that will help them and ultimately express that at the ballot box. So do you reach them through Facebook and then do you direct them to specific actions? Yes, so we use social media, different platforms for online advertising in order to try and reach folks directly. And then we will connect them with either video resources to give more information or links to their secretary of state for them to directly register to vote. Or we have built technology that will help people make a plan to vote and then ultimately get reminders to do that. So we have a bunch of different ways that we are trying to make sure that people are aware of how they can become civically engaged and also making sure that we're giving people information about why it's important. A lot of times groups will come in closer to elections and tell people to vote, but there isn't a lot of work being done to explain why it's important year round. And so what we're trying to do is really change attitudes about voting and about civic participation through constant engagement and social media and online education. All right, let's end on a fun question that's unsolvable. Um, so uh, you're reaching people through Facebook. Uh, I don't want Facebook to ban political ads because uh, that's often a, a more affordable way for progressive candidates to be able to reach people uh, as opposed to television. Um, on the other hand, QAnon conspiracies spread like wildfire on Facebook. And it appears the algorithm massively favors conservatives. Uh, almost every day, nine if not 10 out of 10 are conservative. Uh, posts, etc., on there. So there's something wrong there uh, because it's, that's not a normal thing that happens in political uh, discourse. So, given all of the downsides and given all of the upsides, Facebook, yes or no? Yes. 
I, I think the opportunity is too great for communication. I do think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of enforcement. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of understanding algorithms, which when algorithms are built by mostly men and mostly white men, uh, there's a problem in how they might be distributing information or how they are um, configured in terms of equity, not necessarily equality, but equity. And so I think those problems are there and they're going to be giant problems for us and our society to solve. But at the end of the day, I think it's more important that people have access to to information and communicate. And I'm personally not interested in bringing a knife to a gunfight. So it's important that all groups and all different types of content creators across the spectrum are able to promote information. Mm, I like that attitude. Okay, that's a good note <laughs> to end on. Everybody check out Voter Formation Project. Tatana, thank you so much for joining us, appreciate it. Thank you for having me.